Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in our last program, you addressed a question you got from a teacher who asked what you thought were the problems posed by evolution theory that were the most challenging to answer as a creationist. And in response, you talked about two phenomena we observe today that pose what you call problems for creation theory. That's right, Scott. And without reviewing in detail... What we talked about in the last program, I said the segregation of fossils in the geological column and the preponderance of marsupials in Australia were what I considered the two most difficult things to explain from a creationist perspective. And if my saying that generates questions or interest in any listener today who didn't hear last week's program, I recommend you log on to the scriptureoncreation.org website, and on the radio page, you can find and listen to the program entitled, What? Creationists Don't Have All the Answers? And (laughs) understand what I just referred to. Because in today's program, I'm not going to reiterate what I said last week. I want to give equal time to the creation side. (laughs) Not that that's... (laughs) Not always the side I take anyway on this program, but anyway, since I took the time to share what I think are a couple of the toughest problems creation theory needs to address, I also want to discuss what I think are a couple of the toughest problems evolution theory needs to address. Okay, let's pause for a moment because perhaps we should make it clear in both last week's program and this week's program, you're giving what is your opinion concerning these toughest problems. You know, it's not as though there is some consensus opinion out there somewhere or, you know, some polling results for evolutionists and creationists that determine, you know, these are the issues and these are the key problems for the different perspectives on origins and the diversity of life to resolve. Well, that's right, Scott. Let's face it, there are probably many creationists who don't think what I discussed last week are serious problems, and I know a large portion of evolutionists will disagree with what I call serious problems for evolutionary theory that I'm going to talk about today. Okay, so Dr. Scripture, what do you think are the biggest problems evolutionists face when trying to explain the phenomena we observe in nature today? Well, the most glaring problem I think evolutionists face is how to account for the information we find in living organisms. Now, I grant there surely is a subjective element in that assessment because it relates to my field of study, that is biochemistry and molecular biology. So I suppose someone could say, since those are the areas that I'm personally most familiar with, I would be able to perceive the specific issues that need to be addressed by evolutionary theorists in those areas. But to support my view that this is evolution's most challenging problem, I would point to the large numbers of scientists who are questioning, even abandoning, Darwinism and are now appealing to intelligent design theory to explain the origin and diversity of life on Earth. You see, with the technical abilities we now have to research the inner workings of the cell and figure out the structure and function of the biomolecules that work together to produce living things, it is becoming more and more clear that time and chance cannot be responsible for the exquisite complexity 
and sophisticated synchrony and interdependence of the systems that work together at every level of the processes that are involved in living organisms. So now the exquisite complexity and synchrony you're referring to involve biochemistry, right? Yes, that's part of it. Actually, a major part of it. Mm. Biochemistry means the chemistry of life. In other words, it's the study of chemicals that make life possible. You know some of them, Scott. I'm guessing you're referring to chemicals like DNA and proteins. Well, that's a couple of well-known biomolecules. And there's also RNA. Oh, yes. Probably my favorite. And then there's carbohydrates, which probably are a lot of people's least favorites because (laughs) those are the things that make up sugar and stuff like that. And then lipids, which probably are truly people's least favorite because those make up the fats. (laughs) (laughs) And then there are other biomolecules as well, all of which must interact in a coordinated fashion to take in food, get energy from it, move, grow, reproduce, all the things that constitute life. And ultimately, all those things happen Because the structure of chemicals can carry out very precise chemical reactions and not just fall apart or burn up or stick all together in a big clump. You know, Scott, technically, burning something is a chemical reaction. Hmm. Well, in a way, all cells are burning things, but not burning them up like we understand when you see flame and smoke, but in a fantastically controlled fashion. So the energy released is then harnessed and used by other chemicals. And in order for a chemical to do the specific chemical procedure that it does, its three-dimensional shape has to be perfect. And the three-dimensional shape is prescribed by the instructions of another chemical called DNA, which truly is simply put, a written language that conveys information to chemical machines to make chemicals, biochemicals, that do, quote-unquote, life things. (laughs) So the problem for evolutionary theory is they have got to explain how randomly DNA can fall together in such a way to compose information to make a three-dimensional shape in the form of a protein that can do a chemical reaction that, for example, carefully breaks down another chemical, like a sugar, that's a carbohydrate, get the energy from it, not burn, but just carefully absorb the energy from the breaking of that bond, transfer that energy into another biomolecule that changes its shape so that it does something else, and on and on and on it goes. Is that all it has to do? That's all it's got to do, (laughs) but that's layer after layer upon layer that this energy is passed on from one chemical to another, ultimately to enable the cell to grow, divide, do all the different things that that cell has to do, working together with other cells within a tissue, tissues working together like nervous tissue, muscular tissue, all these things working together to make, oh, let's say, for example, a yeast or a mouse or (laughs) the most fantastic creation, I'm sorry to use the word, (laughs) human beings Mm. with a mind, with the ability to do what we're doing right now, communicate, think abstractly, and most wonderfully communicate with our creator. All those things which, of course, are denied by evolutionists that believe that this all happened purely and only by time and chance. And having said that, that evolution attributes time and chance, the sole source behind producing these complex structures, Thermodynamics also works against this whole idea of chemical complexity. 
Now, a lot of people have heard the, the phrase that the second law of thermodynamics dictates against evolution, but they might not exactly understand what that actually means. What that means is that the structures that compose, for example, DNA and RNA are very complex and highly ordered. And for those things to exist, they actually carry a whole lot of entropic energy, it's called. And so naturally, if you just leave them alone, they're going to break apart and fall apart. And that's called entropy. That's entropy, right. That's what entropic. just absolutely happens to everything. Order just breaks down. Well, the theory of evolution says, yeah, but if you have enough time and you have enough chemicals bumping into each other, you're going to get these amazingly complex chemicals formed. Well, you know what? They really shouldn't throw in that idea of time because time works against this. Time continually, inexorably breaks these chemicals down. So the best explanation for how these complex chemicals would form would be all the building blocks of the chemical would rapidly come together very, very quickly by chance and form a whole DNA molecule that can <laughs> tell a cell how to make a thousand different proteins all at once, rather than this idea of slowly building up, because thermodynamically, that will not happen. The opposite will happen. All of these things will break down. So the source of information to make these complex molecules that is required for the origin and even the diversity of life, in my opinion, is the greatest problem for evolutionary theory to explain, given the theory's insistence that there can be no intelligent, intentional designer, no creator responsible. Okay, Dr. Scripture, so in last week's program, you discussed two problems for creationists to answer. In today's program, you've talked about one problem for evolutionists. Is there another one you want to talk about today? Well, indeed. And it involves the time issue again for evolutionists, because essentially evolutionists always refer to time as a kind of cure-all for any problem, mm. because they have this imaginary elixir. Given enough time, anything can happen. Well, the time factor is actually now under severe scrutiny because of the astounding discoveries of unfossilized tissues in dinosaur bones, which are supposedly over 65 million years old. We've addressed that on this program more than once. Many times. So I'm not going to go into a lot of explanation about the existence of the soft tissue. What I want to point out is what ultimately it means and how it causes such a large problem. Evolutionary theorists insist that the dinosaur went extinct around 65 million years ago, which means that those tissues are 65 million years, supposedly, but they cannot be that old. In fact, they can only be on the order of thousands of years. What that means then is when they say that the rock that they find the dinosaur fossils in is 65 million years old, and we know it can't be that old, it indicates there is a major problem with how they interpret the data that they use to get the ages for the rocks, whether they're talking about 65 million years, 150 million years, or in some cases, even a half a billion years old for uranium and things like that in the various sources of granite that we find all across the earth. Those dates are called into severe question and without that time that they imagine somehow would allow evolution to occur, it puts extreme pressure on any explanation that they would give for how you can get the complex structures, not only of chemicals, but cells, and then even changing from one organism to another, from a simple organism, for example, like a mouse, to a complex organism like a, a gorilla or a human. So we see 
the two main things that evolution points to as the source for evolutionary change, time and chance, are both questioned. Chance by the complexity of biomolecules, which cannot be explained by coming together randomly, and time by soft tissue in rocks that are supposed to be tens of millions years old, which they simply cannot be. Evolution says God was not involved. Time and chance are the only things required. The Bible, of course, says that God was totally involved. And so I want to conclude with what the creationists would point to as the source of the origin and diversity of life. In John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And that's talking about the beginning of creation, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.